Everything they say goes to my head. Well, hello there, and thanks for joining us for Season 7 of the Two Scientists Podcast. As ever, I am your host, Pambe Bahia, and I'd like to start by apologising for this slightly shoddy recording. We made the rookie mistake of going to a bar on trivia night, but luckily for us, our guest powered through. So here she is, Dr. Sophie Darch, in our episode, Breathing and Bugs and Biofilms. Oh my. Alrighty, friends, it's your two scientist crew uh, coming to you from World of Beer in Tampa. And our guest today is Sophie Darch. How are you doing, Sophie? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Uh, sweating yes. a lot. Me too. Uh, since it's that time of year in Tampa, which is grim. Um, but, you know, it's I suppose it's better than being rained on. It's true, and there is a cold beer next to both of us. Indeed. So. That and helps a lot, I think. We get to sit outside, which means you got to bring your little friend. Introduce us to... This is Maggie. Um, <laughs> yeah, the only other member of the Darch Lab right now. Um, so, yeah, and she's very relaxed as usual. So. Very good. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you've looking at your background, you've hopped around a few cities in the UK, a few states in the US. Uh, can you briefly describe your scientific career to date? Sure. Um, so yeah, I started out, I did my undergrad in um, the northwest of England, uh, the University of Lancaster, or at Lancaster University. Um, and so I did biomedical sciences there. Um, and I guess that was really the first time I did any sort of research project. Um, I think it was on yeast, which is not anything I work on now. Uh, yeast and food preservatives or something like that. Oh, wow. Um, but yeah, so not a project that now is super stunning to me, but I know I really enjoyed it, um, even though we were locked basically in a basement lab. And that, I guess, oh, is when I got the, the bug for research. But um, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, and uh, to be honest, when I first went to university, I wanted to be a clinician. Um, I think my parents wanted me to be a clinician, um, and it didn't really work out that way. And so I ended up um, applying for a master's program. Um, mm-hmm. It was at the School of Tropical Medicine in Liverpool. So I went and did that for a year, uh, which was really good. Um, and I did my first project on Pseudomonas, which is what I work on now. So I guess that's when that love affair began. Um, <laughs> and then I sort of fell into my PhD um, when I saw an advert for one in, in Nottingham, and that was with uh, Dr. Steve Diggle. Um, and yeah, so we spent four wonderful years together in Nottingham. Um, met a lot of people, including my uh, postdoc supervisor, Marvin Whiteley. Um, so when I was doing my PhD, um, I spent about three months at University of Texas in Austin. Mm-hmm. Um, I did a, a small research project there with him um, and then basically asked him if I could have a job after I graduated and he <laughs> said yes. So that's where I ended up in Austin. Marvelous. Um, and then he was recruited to Georgia Tech and Emory. Uh-huh. Um, so we moved to Atlanta as a lab. I think it was back in 2018 or end of 2017 Mm -hmm. Um, and I was there for about 18 months and then got this job here at University of South Florida so yeah so I'm hoping now is going to be somewhere I stay for a little bit longer (laughs) Um, put down some roots that would be lovely yes indeed but speaking of uh, the US and um, coming over from the UK was it much of a culture shock for you because I know it was for me moving to Tampa yeah I mean I was growing up I don't think I ever really thought about moving to Texas of many places Um, and so if um, I guess 
if there's any Texans listening to this, I didn't mean that in an offensive <laughs> way, of course. Um, but I guess when you're in the UK, most people think of New York and DC and all these places. Um, I was always very much open to, you know, let's see where things go and always a, a big advocate for taking every opportunity. So, mm-hmm. um, but it wasn't that much of a change. I mean, everything's bigger in Texas. I think that's like a, the same <laughs> they live up to the reputation. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess the biggest thing is driving on the other side of the road on the other side of the car. I guess oh, that's yeah. the hardest thing. Um, so that's slightly terrifying the first couple times you do it. But otherwise, I think, you know, scientists are... Well, all this crazy whatever continent you're on so <laughs> yeah so do you miss anything from home fish and chips fish and chips but like proper chips that oh are, yeah you know you can put gravy and vinegar on which might not be everyone's um taste but yeah things mainly food items i feel like that's really how i um it's how i explore new places i eat my way around um and that's <laughs> what i miss about home really and i don't miss the weather at all so oh i do yeah <laughs> i mean it's because it's eight months of the year is just gross in Tampa, so I do start to miss <laughs> Something it. Something to look forward to, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's we decided that it's just having the year in reverse. So yeah. whereas in the UK you'd spend, you know, September to March hiding, here it's the summer you spend hiding. Mm. Which is why we're sat outside on a patio in July. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's an excuse for beer. Although, what isn't an excuse for beer? Exactly. I agree. <laughs> So moving on to the the fact that you've just started your own lab. So we we throw around terms like PI and principal investigator a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, can you explain where you are kind of within the the hierarchy of academia in the U.S. and um, how it is you got to running your own lab? Well, I mean, hierarchy wise, I think I'm now again basically at the bottom of the food chain. Is how <laughs> I see it, maybe. So I'm an assistant professor and I've literally been in that position about six months now. So I started just at the beginning of January. Um, And how I got here, um, and sometimes it's a bit of a blur. Um, But really, I mean, I I wasn't really even sure I wanted to be in academia when I really started out on my PhD. I didn't really know what PhDs were about. I kind of just really enjoyed doing research. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the more I went through my PhD, I was like, oh, this is great. You get to go to conferences and talk about your work and, you know, just and do science every day and do the thing that you really like Mm -hmm. um so that's kind of i mean that's pretty much how i got there i I just enjoyed what i was doing um so i was lucky i I had two great supervisors for my phd and my postdoc Mm -hmm. um they let me do really fantastic projects that i really liked and let me you know really take them down my own path to do different techniques that i hadn't learned before and um, you know, things I really started to enjoy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also the teaching part, having students in the lab, mentoring them, made me think that maybe this academic thing is for me. So, um, yeah. yeah, just, you know, long shot and put some uh, some job applications in and it kind of all came together last year. So, yeah. And congratulations on your grant because usually the initiation of these labs uh, involves landing a big pot of money. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I don't have any official, like, you know, federal funding or anything like that yet, but a very generous startup package from, from USF, and um, that's going to get things going, hopefully, yeah. So Very good. So, are you excited at the prospect of having your own lab? Because it also sounds kind of daunting. It is, but most of the time, I'm just really excited about the whole experience. I mean, there's lots of new things every day. Um, 
I'm in a really great department where everyone likes to talk about science. The chair is super supportive. Um, and yeah, I'm just really excited to get my first students. Um, the lab is pretty much almost ready to be open, I think in about two weeks. <laughs> We've got all the equipment in. Um, I've got some projects lined up, and so hopefully the, the first batch of um, graduate students come in in August. Um, and then we'll go from there. Very cool. All right. Now, actually, on the subject of your research, maybe we should talk about that for a little bit. Um, so you can, can you tell us what it is that you do? Yep, so the lab, um, it's a biofilm lab. So biofilms are... Um, communities of bacteria that um, live together. They're, most people normally hear about them when we talk about hospital infections, um, antibiotic resistance. I mean, those are the kind of buzzwords you normally hear nowadays when mm -hmm. we talk about biofilms. But um, I guess through my research, at least through my PhD and my postdoc, um, kind of the, the angle that I've been studying biofilms is thinking about individual bacteria within those communities and how they interact with each other. So yep. socially, we would say their social organisms are able to interact with each other. Um, they can communicate. And so sort of looking um, from that aspect, how communication um, impacts antibiotic resistance, um, their diversity, mm -hmm. um, and then their actual physical separation from each other is something that we're really interested in looking at in the lab now. So. How does spatial organization really impact these phenotypes like antibiotic resistance mm -hmm. um, and, and things like that? So okay. that's kind of the overview, I guess, the umbrella of our lab. Uh -huh. um, right so now, what is a biofilm? A biofilm, um, so this is like, a, a, I think, a term that's up for a lot of discussion. Um, biofilms, I think traditionally were always thought to be like these big mushroom-shaped complex structures or you might think about, you know, bacteria that are covering a, a rock or, you know, exist in the ocean, like these big biofilm mats. Um, but when we actually um, look at chronic infections, so things like the cystic fibrosis lung, which is what I'm really interested in in the lab, um, we actually see that bacteria exist as these small clusters of cells, um, and they've started to be termed as, as aggregates. Mm -hmm. So I think people have heard of aggregates a lot when we think about... Um, like uh, neuromedicine, so thinking about Alzheimer's and mm -hmm. aggregates of protein. So yeah. in the concept of its actual spatial orientation, it's very similar, these small clumps or clusterings of cells. Mm -hmm. um, but some people also refer to them as, you know, biofilm flocks, but aggregates is, is kind of the terminology that we use in, in, in our lab. So. Okay. So one of the cute things that I saw in the article we read about you from Georgia Tech was this idea that the bacteria are talking to each other. How does yeah. that work? So bacteria, um, so the paper that we had when I was, uh, that come out when I was doing my postdoc, um, it was about pseudomonas quorum sensing. Um, but a lot of bacteria are able to communicate with each other using this uh, phenomenon called quorum sensing. And basically bacteria use these um, small diffusible molecules. They produce them, they go out into the extracellular environment. Um, and then other bacteria can receive those signal molecules and then respond to them. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of the time we talk about it in terms of the bacteria have to basically reach a threshold or, you know, a, a number of bacteria to actually coordinate a response to those signals. And so that's why it's called quorum sensing. Mm -hmm. So, Okay. Yeah. And so what is the relevance of how those bacteria behave in diseases like cystic fibrosis? What does it mean for somebody who has the disease? So, I mean, quorum sensing itself, um, it regulates, so this type of communication regulates a lot of genes um, mm -hmm. in, in these bacteria, and a lot of those genes are related to virulence factors. So in terms of thinking about um, someone with a chronic infection, 
It means that Pseudomonas and other bugs that have these systems can produce a lot of virulence factors, um, like proteases or you know toxins. Pyocyanin is a, a really funky green pigment that Pseudomonas produces. Um, <laughs> And they're basically really detrimental to the host. So whether they cause host damage, inflammation, um, and potentially, you know, there's rarely you find one bacteria alone, but we still don't know a lot about how these systems are kind of eavesdropped on by other bacteria. So it's, it's a lot more complex than just one bacteria and its interaction with the host, mm -hmm. uh, but also other species and then within itself as well. So. Oh, okay. And so uh, presumably people who have cystic fibrosis are particularly prone to having complications from these things. Yeah, so I mean, there's a, there's a lot of um, clinical, um, I guess, symptoms from, from individuals with cystic fibrosis. Um, it basically makes them immunocompromised. Um, and so those patients, because of this, this compromised immune system, they're, they're more susceptible to bacterial infections. Um, and yep. Pseudomonas um, is probably one of the most prominent pathogens that, that we'll find in, in the CF lung. Um, but other other organisms like Staphylococcus aureus, um, they're very prevalent, especially from childhood. And mm -hmm. then as they get a little bit older, Pseudomonas becomes a bit more prevalent. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, CF individuals have a lot of other um, clinical concerns, like digestive problems, mm -hmm. and, you know, other you know outcomes of, of having that um, condition. But yeah. unfortunately, even with some of the new treatments that are there for cystic fibrosis. Um, in terms of these new modulator drugs that which improve airway function, um, infection is still a big problem and that's mm -hmm. why um, the CF Foundation has you know, really pushed this new, well, new initiative to, to really focus on the infection um, mm -hmm. side of, of uh, treatment and um, yeah, so treatment for chronic infections mm -hmm. over the next five years. So Okay. So I guess we, we're kind of doing this a little bit backwards, but can you explain a little bit more about the, the disease itself? Yeah, so um, cystic fibrosis, it's a genetic um, disorder. Um, so patients who have that, basically um, in very lay terms, um, it's all about a, an anion channel that um, is found in the epithelial cells around the body. Um, so that's why it's not just in the lungs um, that we get effects, but also in the digestive system. Um, but with the, you know, basically malfunctioning ion channel, patients get a very um, thick viscous mucus that builds up in the lungs and that's what acts as a basically a bacterial trap and so pseudomonas really thrives in that environment um, and that's what makes them really susceptible and then pseudomonas growth there's aggregates and, and biofilms um, that really that that mode of growth and that physiology makes them very resistant to antibiotics and antimicrobials so mm -hmm. okay so in the, the context of the bacteria that you study, how do you study them? So, I mean, there's lots of different ways to, that people study Pseudomonas. I mean, there's so many, so many people working on Pseudomonas in so many different ways. Um, but how I study them in the lab, um, we're really interested in looking at, looking at them really up close. So, mm -hmm. you know, single cells, small clusters. And so we use a lot of microscopy um, in terms of you know, being able to see them develop um, these aggregates or small biofilms in real time, um, three dimensions and micron scale. So we, you know, use a, a lot of different pseudomonas strains. Some of them, you know, they've been taken from the environment. Some are taken from actual um, CF lung infections. Mm -hmm. um, and we get them to express fluorescent proteins. And so we can visualize them in uh, under the microscope. And what we do is we use a synthetic CF sputum media. Um, so basically this was a, a media um, for an in vitro system that was developed in my postdoc lab 
uh, by Kelly Palmer. She's a, a professor at uh, UT Dallas now. She has her own lab. Mm -hmm. um, and so basically this media is, it was designed using actual sputum from patients. So did a chemical analysis. Um, and nutritionally and physically, in terms of its viscosity, it's very similar to actual sputum, mm -hmm. this, uh, this synthetic media. So we use that um, to actually study the organisms in a more similar environment to what we'd actually see in an infection. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, so we, we see how they form aggregates. Uh, we can treat them with antibiotics and look at the effects of that in real time. We can add in host immune cells. We can add in other bacteria, other, mm -hmm. we can add fungal species, all sorts of things. So it's a really adaptable system. Um, that we can really start looking at, you know, these interactions and development of biofilms at a smaller scale. Mm -hmm. So when we're talking about media, we're basically just talking about the solution that the bacteria yeah. hang out in and grow yeah. in. It's kind of, I mean, it's thick, a little bit like snot. I'm not sure if I'm, <laughs> that's a polite word to use. Um, yeah, it, I think, I mean, in terms of when I talk about viscosity, if you think about, you know, a really thick oil or like olive oil, mm -hmm. um, that's kind of how it starts out. So it's something that's, you know, more thick than water, basically. Okay. <laughs> so essentially, you're, you're kind of creating this solution and adding various things to the mix and yeah. then taking some of that out presumably and looking yeah. under the microscope yeah so the media itself is really really defined and so the nice thing about that is that you can take things out you can add them in um, and the viscous component is we add in a lot of dna um, which you would normally find in in cf sputum um, and then also mucin so that's a really big lycoprotein that basically you know makes things thicker um, yeah so that's what we add in and that makes it extra viscous mm, <laughs> yummy yeah <laughs> Okay, so on behalf of David, who likes to avoid the microphone, um, in some diseases like cancer, which is what he works on, mm -hmm. we are making slow progress, and in others, like those we could easily treat people with antibiotics, we seem to be going backwards. Where is cystic fibrosis? Hmm. Well, this is just a, yeah, this is a mixed kind of... Cystic fibrosis is still a mixed bag in terms of treatment. I mean, there's a lot of different mutations the patients can have that gives them the, the disease cystic fibrosis and so mm -hmm. those different mutations give them a different severity of disease and so there has been a lot of progress in terms of uh, these new um, therapeutics called immunomodulators which basically help that misfunctioning anion channel function better and so that has helped um, some groups of patients um, but in terms of the infection part um, Antibiotic resistance, in, and especially in, in bacteria such as Pseudomonas, is still a big problem. And mm -hmm. so I think with the excitement of, you know, these new therapies for lung function, some of the infection part has been a little bit overlooked. And so with that still being a problem, I think there's a lot more focus now on trying to figure out, you know, with new antibiotics, there's not many in the pipeline, thinking about alternative strategies. So targeting things like quorum sensing, these communication systems that, you know, cause virulence or make a, a bacteria more virulent. Those are the kind of routes and avenues that people are going down. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing as well in terms of, you know, with success stories of, you know, the CF um, average age um, of survival now is much higher than it used to mm -hmm. be. Um, but this actually makes those patients a little bit more susceptible to new pathogens. Um, so it's things like, you know, non-TB mycobacteria, aspergillus, fumigatus, all these new pathogens which are, you know, now becoming a problem. Um, for these patients and so we need to find treatment strategies for those too. Mm -hmm. I think I'm showing my ignorance now because the last time I heard anything about cystic fibrosis this one particular ion channel this 
protein which sits in the cell membrane. I was under the understanding that it was a single mutation in that gene that was the problem. Are there multiple mutations then? So there's different mutations. Yeah, there's, um, I mean, in terms of, this is where we'll test my understanding. There's many, um, many mutations and they're, they're grouped into different classes. Mm -hmm. So in terms of how they affect that protein. So some mutations impact um, the folding of the protein, the CFTR protein, which is a cystic fibrosis transmembrane regulator for its full jazzy name. Um, some affect how that protein is able to locate to the, you know, the outer membrane. Some affect the gating, so it, they're all mutations on chromosome seven, um, but there are more than one. Yeah, there's not one in just one, oh. one single point mutation. Okay. Um, so David's follow-up to that question is: Do these many mutations in CF mean that every patient has a unique disease and a unique treatment? Um, I think in terms of unique disease, I think each class does have um, slightly different clinical presentation. I mean, I'm not a clinician, so some of the aspects I'm not so familiar with. Mm -hmm. I'm, it's, my understanding is that one doesn't make a patient more susceptible to, you know, a pseudomonas infection than another, as mm -hmm. far as I understand. Um, but I do think that everyone's CF, in terms of their chronic infections that they get, are unique. So some patients might be very um, susceptible to one antibiotic, while another might not. And especially mm -hmm. when you have um, siblings you both have cystic fibrosis and that's often the case in a family more than one child will have the disease um, their infections can progress in a very different way also so yeah there's a lot of heterogeneity I guess in terms of you know how someone might respond to antibiotics and kind of how their um, experience progresses I guess mm -hmm. so how kind of close are you to the the clinical side of the process or are you very very kind of what we call basic research um I mean Training-wise, I'm, you know, a basic scientist, um, but I've always had an interest in terms of the clinical side of, of cystic fibrosis um, and trying to take a translational approach to uh, the research that I do and what I hope to do in the future as well. Um, so when I was doing my uh, PhD, we had a really good relationship with the local hospital, and so we got clinical samples from, from uh, a really great group of clinicians there uh, in Nottingham. Um, and also when obviously we were at Georgia Tech, Emory, um, so my postdoc supervisor is a co-director of the CF Institute there, um, and so we had access to a lot of clinical samples. So in terms of contact with, with patients, they don't let me go anywhere near them. Um, I think I'd have a great bedside manner, but I don't think I'm much help apart from that. Um, and then... But I, my, my goal here at USF is, is really as part of this USF Health um, kind of conglomerate is to really start bridging the gap between, you know, clinicians and, and researchers and trying to either, you know, use new technologies to, you know, incorporate clinical samples or make new biorepositories. Um, yeah, so I, I mean, I really, I'm really interested in the translational aspect of, of research, um, but basically I'm a basic scientist. <laughs> I've just realized in modern terminology, basic scientist has a whole new term, right? I do enjoy a pumpkin spice latte, um, and I think I do own a pair of Uggs somewhere, but um, yeah, I mean, I don't think we even use that term in the UK, but yeah, I mean. No, that's true. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's the first time I've ever said it and made the connection between yeah. the two terms. I'm, I'm proud. I'm proud to be a basic scientist. There we go. <laughs> um, so, 
David says, either way, how do you see your work impacting the clinic? Well, in terms of the antibiotic resistance aspects of the work, I think, you know, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of different groups all over the world now really thinking about how you have these mixed populations of cells, some are resistant, some are sensitive to antibiotics, and really trying to understand those interactions. So I think really it's, I hope that this, the work that I'll be doing at least adds to the work that other scientists are doing in terms of this topic and thinking about, you know, when we have a patient in the clinic, you know, we have to really think about these mixed populations of cells rather than just one group that are sensitive or resistant and, you know, personalize these therapies a little bit more. Um, but I think any, you know, anything I can do that, you know, helps our understanding of pseudomonas a little bit better, whether it's cystic fibrosis or some other chronic infection, um, I'll be pretty happy with my lot if, if, you know, if I can make some impact that way. Excellent life goals. Yeah, hashtag life goals. Right? <laughs> so, Robert, did you have any questions? Yeah, so the question was um, are there any antibiotics that would work or not work? So, you know, between the two, you know, sensitive or resistant in another system versus the system that I'm using. So, I'm I'm guessing like we're thinking about, you know, when we look at diagnostic labs um, in, in a hospital, what they normally do is they use a rich media. Um, a lot different, though, a lot less complex than um, you know the synthetic CS retail media that we're using. It's not viscous, um, and so a lot of the time, um, the results that they get from these um, test results, they don't actually have any kind of impact on how the clinician treats the patient. So they would show sensitive or resistant. Um, and we do see different results in the synthetic sputum media when we think about antibiotic resistance profiles. Um, I wouldn't want to say, you know, one is better than the other. Um, I think everyone has got the same goal to, you know, try and have a system that recapitulates infection a little bit more closely. Um, but there's definitely differences between, you know, depending on the system that you use, for sure. David always has more questions. <laughs> so he says, what... What's the most challenging part of your research and your work? Ooh, most challenging part. I mean, there's definitely many, many challenging parts to starting a new lab. Um, you go from, you know, having a research project to suddenly being in charge of lots of things that I didn't do before. So, um, so I, I mean, I think every, every day is a little bit of a, a new challenge, which is the exciting part of having your own lab. I, I feel like... I mean, the techniques that I've been using already, I feel like I've mastered those enough to kind of get by, I guess. Uh -huh. um, but, you know, the, I, you know, science is evolving all the time. There's new techniques. I mean, I'm, I'm certainly not an expert in, you know, uh, next generation sequencing or anything like that. So that's a challenge to, you know, really try and incorporate that into my research. Or, you so know, explain just, what that is. So next generation sequencing is, you know, basically uh, sequencing the genetic material of, of the bacteria that we're studying. So this can be... This can take different forms. You hear people talk about transposon sequencing, where you're, you know, taking a whole library or a whole selection of mutants um, and testing them all in one go. Um, so basically, sequencing to do that, um, and then RNA sequencing. So thinking about how the bacteria responds to its environment and looking at RNA transcripts. So those are the two main, uh, two main techniques that most labs are using now. Um, but those techniques are you know, advancing quicker than, you know, anyone can even get a PhD nowadays, I think. So, um, I'm hoping uh, I'm going to have some awesome students and postdocs who are going to be really interested in kind of taking those projects further um, that I think will be really fun to do in the lab, so. How's she doing down there? She's good. She's, she's socializing. 
She looks um, happy. Obviously, nobody can see us on the podcast. We're talking about Maggie the dog. <laughs> um, so what is the most misunderstood part of what you do? And what would you love people to know? Most misunderstood part. Well, thinking about what I've done so far, I mean, so I, I had the pleasure of working on a project during my postdoc um, using a system uh, called bacterial lobster traps. They had different different names. They they start out as uh, bacterial lobster traps. Um, now you know the the technique is called micro three D printing. Basically, okay. we, we made these little houses for bacteria. It was actually my, my best friend, uh, Jody Connell. She's, she used to be a postdoc in the Wiley lab. She's now at 3M, being an awesome scientist there. But she developed this technology in a lab at UT Austin. Um, and basically, we used to trap bacteria in these little houses. Um, and we let them grow up and we'd watch them under the microscope. And so, I don't know what conferences. We always had these wonderful images and, and these traps. They look like, oh, wow, this works every time. I can remember times. Three o'clock in the morning, a trap had basically collapsed, and you just see this small bacteria twitching under it like a tent had fallen on top of it. And you just, I feel like that's probably the same with everyone's postdoc or PhD that, you know, one slide represents, you know, 5,000 failed experiments. And some that you actually, you know, you caused yourself because you got the microscope slides stuck and you ripped the top off and, you know, all these things. So, yeah, I think, I guess. I mean, I'm not even worried if people don't under, you know, have an understanding of the time put into it. It's just, those things look so simple, but they're really not. So, um, so, so yeah. the basic complexity of these things. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, so basic complexity. Um, but sometimes you, you use complicated systems to answer relatively simple questions. And so, and then vice versa. So, I mean... That's so so cool. all of it, essentially. Yeah, all of it. <laughs> science. <laughs> People should understand it's science. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I think if that were the case, then none of us would have a job. So. No. Thank, thank goodness things keep going wrong. <laughs> I think that's what's good. It's just, I wish they wouldn't go wrong for like nine months to years at a time. No. That would be good. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. I mean, I haven't, I, knock on wood, hasn't been that long a stint, but there's yes. still time. <laughs> yes. Well, on the subject of things going right, we're going to say thank you very much for your time today. Uh, you we for really appreciate me. you answering our questions. Cheers. Yeah, cheers. science you know powering through and I think that was something that I was taught during my uh, my PhD and my postdoc you know it's good to network at conferences but don't network too much the night before an important presentation um, and so I had a very great time at um, ASM microbe last year and I may have struggled through a little bit my presentation before and after um, there may have been a few quick trips to the bathroom but I still managed to get through my 12-minute presentation hold on to the podium to answer questions. And so if I can do that and still get a job here at University of South Florida, um, there's hope for everyone, I think. So yeah, <laughs> perseverance pays off.
Thanks for bearing with us, everyone. If you'd like to get some details on this episode and find some adorable pictures of Maggie the Science Dog, you can head to our website, twoscientists.org. There you can find all our social media channels. You can also follow Sophie on her Twitter handle, at DarchLab. Thank you to her, our friend Robert for joining, the world of beer for said beer, and of course, the amazing Sun Signs for providing their track, Aries. Again, you can find all their details in our show notes. Catch you all next week, peeps. So, um, no heavy networking in future. Yeah, heavy networking. Yeah, hashtag heavy networking. <laughs>